everyone, and welcome to another episode of COVID and the Classroom, a podcast dedicated to getting kids back to school, putting parents in positions of power, and navigating the new world of education in the time of coronavirus. I'm your host, Mary Claire Amsalom. I need to take a deep breath before even diving into today's episode. I'm drinking my third cup of coffee of the day currently because this topic is a little more difficult than some of the stuff I've talked about before. It's pretty simple for me to come on here and say that I think that parents should be able to choose what school their kids go to. People might violently disagree with that, but no one necessarily calls you a horrible person for thinking that. But today I wanna get into something that we touched on in the last episode, but it's worth digging into more. And we got some good feedback on that discussion that I had with Jonathan Butcher last episode. So today we're gonna talk about woke culture and identity politics in our schools. 2020 is completely exhausting. We're all just so tired by turning on the news every single day. Conservatives seem like they're getting ready for another big purge like we saw a few years ago in 2016 where people are are purging conservatives from their life. We saw all the, the think pieces about uh, ladies, you need to divorce your conservative husbands, about how to rid your Republican friends from your social circles. And almost every conservative I know has stories like this, where uh, people have completely nixed friends from their life who, who don't think the same way as them. And that's a symptom of identity politics and woke culture. If you are a member of a certain group, you have to think a certain way or else you are deeply problematic. I, for example, am deeply problematic. I am a woman. I, uh, I wholeheartedly reject modern feminism. I'm pro-life. I'm conservative. I'm Catholic. I, I'm, I'm a really big problem. When they, when they start the truth and reconciliation commissions like Robert Reich wants to, you know, they're going to come knock down my door and kidnap me and put me in a camp and re-educate me. I'm a big problem. And I'm getting so many texts from friends nowadays because I'm an outspoken conservative. I I always have been. uh, I have been my entire life. That's just sort of the way I am. People who aren't, you know, so outspoken, but, but sort of lean this way, I'm getting so many people texting me being like, how do you deal with all of the the name calling and the people calling you a horrible person that that didn't exist a few years ago, but it does now. And I was actually talking to a colleague of mine earlier today, and I hope he's okay with me talking about this. I obviously won't say his name, but he asked me, he said, you know, we're all used to losing friends because of politics, which is just such a horrible premise to even start with. But he asked me if I uh, had ever lost a friend over my religion. And, and it sort of took me back because I thought, uh, I don't know, actually. I mean, my, my political views are obviously informed by my faith, but I, no one's ever told me that they couldn't be friends with me anymore because I'm a Catholic. But he was saying that he was having problems with that, where he's having people kind of turn on him because he's very staunch in his religious faith. And it just made me so sad. And uh, this was earlier this morning, and it's been sticking with me all day because he was so obviously disturbed by it. And it just goes to show that we're we're going through this cycle again. And I guess it's been it's been building up the last few years where there are people and there are organizations and there are institutions that are trying to tear us apart by race, by religion, by skin color, by creed. And we can't let them do it. We just have to say, no, we can't let them tear us apart like this. We have a lot more in common. I firmly believe this. I have pessimistic days, but today I guess I'm not as pessimistic. We have a lot more in common than we have not in common. And so we need to fight back against this division that's going on. And this division is starting and is deeply rooted in our schools. 
So today I'm going to be joined by two policy experts, Max Eden at the Manhattan Institute and Mike Gonzalez, who's my colleague at the Heritage Foundation, who both look at what has been happening to our society, not just over the past four years, but over the past you know few decades, that has brought us to this point where we are deeply, deeply divided and we are graduating students from our public school system who are not simply educated in reading, writing, and arithmetic, but have been trained to be activists and they leave angry and they leave school determined to become agents of social change. And I personally think that that's why we've seen a lot of disruption in our city this past summer. So we'll be talking about that with our guests later in the show, but first let's get into today's headlines. First up, this story is from the 74, and it should be very disturbing to you, especially you parents who are teaching your kids uh, online on Zoom. Uh, It's called Don't Get Gaggled. Minneapolis School District spends big on student surveillance tool raising ire after terminating its police contract. You heard that right. Surveillance tool. Minneapolis education leaders have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars this year to surveil children online, even after the district ended its police department contract and launched school safety reforms that officials said would build trust between adults and students. The district terminated its longstanding relationship with the city's police department after George Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis officer in May. But since the pandemic closed campuses in March and required students to attend online classes from home, the district has shelled out more than $355,000 for digital surveillance, a tool called Gaggle, according to contracts obtained by the 74 through public records request. Gaggle is currently used in hundreds of school districts across the U.S., relying on artificial intelligence and a team of moderators paid as little as $10 an hour to scan billions of student emails, chat messages, and files each year in search of references to sex, drugs, and violence. So to be clear, it's software that looks at your personal information and the justification is they're searching out references to, as I said, sex, drugs, and violence. This is a big problem. I don't, I don't even know where to begin to talk about what a problem this is. You're, you're enrolling in your kids in online class, and that is giving permission for them to look through your emails and your texts. And they're justifying it by saying, well, you know, it's sort of like looking through a kid's locker to make sure they didn't bring a gun to school. No, no, no. They're using this to make sure that you are not committing wrong think. As I established before, I am very guilty of, of committing wrong think, according to a lot of the thinking inside our public education system. This is a big problem. We talked earlier on the show about, in a couple episodes ago, about how teachers are asking parents not to listen in on what's happening in their students' classroom. And then also, we find out that in Minneapolis, for example, and they said that lots of school districts are doing this, are spying on their students, basically. Parents should definitely be aware of this and be aware that this is just another reason that Zoom education is absolutely not working for America's families. Going along further with with privacy rights uh, getting trampled on, uh, our next story is that the CDC denounces unethical and illegal mandatory coronavirus testing in schools. Politico, according to Politico, the CDC is condemning mandatory coronavirus testing in K-12 schools, updating guidance after New York City began random testing this week on thousands of students and educators. In revamped advice published this week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention endorsed voluntary surveillance testing in schools, but decries any mandates. 
quote, it is unethical and illegal to test someone who does not want to be tested, including students whose parents or guardians do not want them tested, the CDC said. Again, for the millionth time, we are in unprecedented times, but we can't use our fear about coronavirus to completely throw all of our principles and norms out the window. We just can't. And good on the CDC for saying that you can't force testing on students. That's different than saying uh, we're going to close our doors to people unless they have been tested, because then you at least have, have the choice beforehand that, that puts parents in a difficult position. But Forcing testing on students in schools is certainly something that we should push back against. You know, we've dunked on New York City a lot on this podcast. Don't necessarily mean to be doing it, but those are the stories that that come up. So um, uh, good on the CDC for for calling out that it is, as they said, unethical and illegal to test someone who does not want to be tested. Next up... (sighs) Oh, gosh, this story. Virginia's Fairfax County's Teachers Union demand the schools remain closed until, get this, August of 2021 or possibly longer, according to The Blaze. The Teachers Unions of Fairfax County and Virginia want school children to learn from home for the rest of the school year until August of 2021. Science and health safety data support and require that no one should return to in-person instruction until there's a widely available scientifically proven vaccine or highly effective treatment for COVID-19, the Fairfax Education Association wrote in a letter campaign addressed to the Fairfax County School Board and Superintendent. The metric for safe reopening should be 14 days of zero community spread, the letter stated. In addition to closing schools through 2020 to 2021 school year, The teachers union demanded that limited reopening be attempted only if all buildings are equipped with HVAC MERV 13 filters, if all staff is provided with medical grade PPE, including N95 masks, goggles, face shields, and more, and if COVID-19 testing is available for staff, and this is all according to The Blaze. This is putting parents, obviously, in a very difficult position, but it's also drawing an arbitrary line. August of 2021, there there are all these demands for, for schools safely reopening. It's important to note that school reopenings have been going pretty well. School reopenings have not been linked to massive super spreader events. Schools have been doing okay, and they have been doing okay without a lot of these demands. That's being demanded at the Fairfax County Teachers Union. And it's important to also note that our society has been going back to normal and schools are not some magical exception to that. And I want to highlight something that I read the other day that really blew my mind. The Department of Defense came out with a study looking at how likely it is to get coronavirus on an airplane. And they found that it's virtually impossible to get coronavirus on an airplane. They found that your chance of getting it is point. 0.003% risk of contracting coronavirus on an airplane. That's due to the filters that they have, that's due to all these things, but it doesn't matter where you're sitting on the airplane, your your risk of infection is relatively low. So uh, I I see here that the teachers union is demanding that they have filters in place. I don't know if those are similar ones to the airplane. That's certainly an interesting idea, but to demand that all of these metrics get put in place and that there's zero community spread, not one single case, it's simply an unrealistic standard, especially since we know that children and young people do very well with this virus. I am 
so pleased to be joined today by two fabulous scholars who think very critically about a lot of the issues we've been talking about on this podcast, uh, the themes of this episode, identity politics and woke culture, how this is seeping its way into America's classrooms and what we can do to push back against it. Uh, Max Eden is a Singer Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. And Mike Gonzalez is my colleague at the Heritage Foundation. He works in the Allison Center for Foreign Policy. He is also the author of the recent book, The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. Thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. So we're at this unique moment that no one saw coming, obviously, with the the coronavirus shutting down our schools. And we're seeing teachers unions uh, largely drag their feet to to push for reopening our schools. And I think parents who are one, seeing that and frustrated with it, and two, uh, are maybe for the first time getting a close hand look at what their uh, kids are learning at school because they're they're learning at home and they're seeing what they're learning on Zoom. And they're thinking, wait a minute, are our schools getting too politicized? Uh, this isn't something that we wanted to sign up for. This isn't something that we expected to see because we assumed that our public school system should just be this apolitical institution that's all about creating, you know, able-bodied citizens. Um, but then people like, you know, us who study these issues have been saying, well, schools have been politicized for quite a long time. And so, Mike, I want to ask you first, can you break down for us how we've gotten to this cultural moment, what have been the steps that has led us here? And then Max, I would love for you to then jump in and discuss how that has specifically seeped into our public education system. Well, you know, I am an optimist uh, by nature and I, um, I, 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 I see a silver lining everywhere. And the silver lining I see here is that uh, the, the very fact that the teachers unions have been so obdurate in refusing to open up schools even though we see liquor stores and, and nail salons and protests uh, that are available to, for people, has really, uh, for the first time, turned uh, parents very much against the teachers' unions. And I, 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 uh, I'm a conservative, but I was a journalist for 20 years, so I have very uh, many liberal friends. And I also live in the Washington suburbs, uh, which are all liberal, because that's where the permanent bureaucracy lives. And I, I, I'm seeing a lot of mothers, particularly, fuming about the teachers' unions. So that is the first thing, right? That's the first step. It has set, it's changed a lot of minds of people who wouldn't have thought politically about the role of the teachers' unions. And then, as you said, Mary Claire, uh, there is the fact that they're beginning to see the things that are being taught. Uh, just today, I had lunch with my 12-year-old, who is in the sixth grade, uh, as my as my wife was working out, so I, I I was able to have a conversation with him, and he was telling me about the things he's learning, and I could see the the the, the introduction of woke ideas in even uh, foreign language classes. So I think that parents are now becoming more in contact with the subject matter, and they and 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 and, and, and of course we probably talk about this later. There's also the rise. Of the of the, a lot of a lot of parents are sending the children to to private schools or have or choosing the, the the homeschooling option, so I'm optimistic that COVID, as harsh as it has been, especially if you have school age children, may bring with it a silver lining and affect our cultural moment in a positive way eventually. Yeah, absolutely, Max. What do you think? Yeah, um, well, I'm a little bit less of an optimist by disposition than Mike, perhaps, but. Uh, 
there is perhaps some optimism to be had in the fact that parents have been looking over their kids' shoulders at the Zoom lessons and seeing for the first time what's really downstream of the philosophical commitments that have held sway in our schools of education for decades now. And they're seeing it manifest in two ways. One, the most direct way is they're thinking, wait, my kid's not really learning very much of anything. These teachers aren't delivering knowledge. The things that I was taught, the people I was taught about, places I was taught about, the times, the ideas, I'm not really seeing any substance here. It looks like they're just taking things off of Google and smashing them together and trying to promote quote unquote critical thinking skills. Uh, that is directly downwind of a pedagogical ideology that says that knowledge is uh, a thing of a past, that we need, what we needed to do is create 21st century learners by inculcating skills and dispositions. Now, the issue is that that has always existed side by side within schools of education with this kind of Paulo Freire pedagogy of the oppressed, education as liberation ideology where the role of education is seen as trying to create a generation of kids that will fundamentally change the system around them. So this isn't entirely new. What is new, and I think what parents are seeing more directly to Mike's point, is that the, the nature of this, what has always been a softer, very kind of quiet revolutionary subcurrent in schools of education is now going directly into the classroom with a, a very aggressive Ibram Kendi, quote unquote, anti-racist mm -hmm. twist, right? It's, it's no longer uh, a class capitalist structure, history, progress. It's being framed explicitly as issues of racism and anti-racism. And when you have teachers in front of students who have been told their entire teaching careers, what you're teaching for is social justice, what you're teaching for is social change, and that is very suddenly framed for them by not only the media, but many, many major organizations uh, that set the culture for our educators as an explicitly racial and racialist question that if you do not teach uh, what Ibram Kendi thinks, what Robin DiAngelo thinks, then you are complicit in racism. Uh, you are starting to see really terrible racialist ideologies become mainstream in our schools because these teachers are being told that unless they teach kids to think about race as the center of American life and the central problem uh, to be solved by problematizing everything, then you are complicit in a system of racism. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how long this can be sustainable for before parents really uh, revolt against it. And as Mike intimated, you know, there's some solace to be had, optimism to gain to, to hope that maybe this will start to lead to them to look for other options. Yeah, well, well, it's not sustainable, right? I mean, we're, we're starting to see that this has been going on for enough time now that we're seeing graduates of, uh, of the public school system with teachers who are teaching this type of ideology come out into the world and they are not able-bodied, knowledgeable people. I think it's interesting that you said that knowledge is a thing of the past. I think that's so true. Uh, they're people who are angry and they're people who are activists. And the only thing they know how to do is be an activist. And, and personally, that's why I think we have seen our cities go up in flames this summer. We've seen people very, very upset uh, at, at this system that they have been taught to hate. And the only way they know how to deal with it is by going to the streets and being activists. Um, what are the institutions at play here? And Mike, this might speak a little bit to, to your book, the, the Plot to Change America. Can you talk a little bit about what, what that plot is, what, you've been, what you talk about in that book and, and what 
role a lot of these major institutions in our society have played in in helping fundamentally change our education system and therefore change our citizens to come out into the world and as max put it want to to upend everything and be agents of social change well one thing i always say is uh a, what, what i mean by the plot to change america is not that they are they, they are meetings every thursday night in 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 brooklyn New York or in Cambridge, Massachusetts or in Madison, Wisconsin, that uh, uh, activists attend. Uh, but there is uh, a, a, a shared understanding of what needs to be done, and that is to transform the country. The, the, the sliver of the population, it is by no means a majority, the sliver of the population that hates America and thinks America is fundamentally bad and racist and needs to be transformed has been very good at, at taking over the institutions. Max brought up the very good examples of the schools of education where Paulo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is taught. Uh, it is the, the book, I think, according to, to Jay Shandlin of the Martin Center in a, in a study that he did of 300 syllabi about uh, four years ago, it is the book that is most taught uh, to our teachers. Uh, so that is one institution, for example, that has been completely saturated, completely taken over by uh, by the left, by, but not just the left, not just the the, the, the the typical you know union working class left, but by this very ideological left that has been reared, uh, has that has drunk uh, very deeply from the wells of, of critical theory and critical race theory. Uh, so what it, it attempts to do is to teach the children. Uh, that they are either victim that this idea that the, the America and the whole world really is divided between the subjugated and the oppressors, uh, and it wants to teach. Uh, it creates first of all, it creates minorities. It creates identity groups, and I'm speak, speaking specifically about the the panethnic categories of Hispanics or Asians were created by the bureaucracy by the bureaucracy in this in the late seventies at the instigation of the activists. The activists intimidated the bureaucracy to create these groups. Then they seek to uh, to infuse the members of these categories with the idea that they're victims. As I say to people when I speak about this, when I speak about my book, I never look at my three children. Well, one of them is in college now, so he doesn't, he's not at the breakfast table anymore. But I never looked at them and said, hmm, I really want them to grow up to become victims. Uh, no, I want them to grow up to be, as as Max said, you know, functional adults, people who are who can succeed in life. However, if what I wanted to do was change America, if what I wanted to do was transform America into something else, then I would have a reason to teach them to think of themselves as victims, to instill grievances into them, and to say the 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 the, the system is oppressive. The country is systemically racist. Mm-hmm. The country is, is institu- institutionally and structurally bad. Thus, we need to change all the structures, institutions, and the system itself. Uh, and that is exactly, exactly what is done. And I'll just finish off by saying uh, I, I, I wrote uh, a, 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 uh, an op-ed um, recently for Law and Liberty in which I quoted uh, Maria Teresa Kumar, the CEO of Voto Latino, in a conversation with Alicia Garza of Black Lives Matter and and, Hannah, and, and Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times 1619th Project, she said, look, you have to understand the problem that I have. I am dealing with Hispanics, Latinos, who, who are not aware that they live in an oppressive society. <laughs> I 
have to teach them <laughs> how oppressive society is. So let me translate this for you. She is what she's saying is she's looking at people who are either immigrated here, attracted by our values, by our property, uh, prosperity and liberty, or their children in saying, no, 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 no. This is a very bad system that oppresses you and you need to work assiduously to change it. That is the plot. That is the plot. Yeah, I'm just I'm laughing because it, it, the the group that I can relate to is uh, as a woman, I'm constantly told that I, I'm blinded by the patriarchy and that the, these these ideas that I buy into are because that I, I'm just I'm so blinded by the patriarchy that I can't see how I'm being oppressed. It's such an insulting uh, way of thinking. But uh, moving past that, um, we, we think about the this this change in our society. And we think that there there's long-term ramifications, but we don't think of these policies as being uh, uh, directly harmful on specific people until it is, which, which turns to Max and your book. Um, uh, your book, Why Meadow Died, which you co-authored with Andrew Pollack, is probably the most heartbreaking book I've ever read. I had a really hard time getting through it, but it's an important book to read. I think I gave a copy to like everyone I know. Um, because I, I'm sure people listening to this podcast are going, well, this is an education policy podcast. Why are we talking about the Parkland shooting? And we did a little bit on the last episode. I had Jonathan Butcher on and we talked about the issue of disparate impact. And so this came up um, and, and you wrote this book uh, with Andrew Pollack, who, whose daughter was killed in the Parkland shooting. And, and you know, I'll, I'll let you get a little more into it. But I mean, he seemed like someone who was genuinely interested in finding the answers. What happened? And, and I guess he was a conservative guy before this, but he, it seemed to me that if the answer was gun control, he would have come to that conclusion. He was just interested in, as he would say, fixing it. Um, but he found that there were education policies in place that let this happen, that are a result as, you know, as I would describe woke culture. Can you, can you break that down for us and, and talk a little bit about your book and, and what you found in the research for that book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so as you said, Andrew Pollack, his, his daughter Meadow was murdered in the Parkland shooting and he has said to me many times, and I believe him, I mean, if, if gun control were the issue, if it had turned out that there was some loophole that had been introduced into legislation by an NRA lobbyist that enabled the shooter to get a gun, uh, when in another state he wouldn't have been able to, a state with stronger gun laws per se, uh, then he would have been right next to those March for Our Lives students lobbying against the NRA and lobbying for more gun control. But what we found was that there was no gun law in America that would have stopped this psychopathic murderer from acquiring a firearm despite a long history of crime. This is a student who had uh, brought knives to school, brought bullets to school, threatened to rape his classmates, threatened to murder his classmates, threatened to shoot up the school. Everybody knew who he was. More red flags could not possibly have been raised. But every single time a red flag was, ra was raised, it was ignored by the school administrators or also in the community by the police. And you start to look at this and the way that Andy said it at the beginning of our investigation was just, you know, I cannot believe how much incompetence went into the shooting. This is the most avoidable mass murder in American history. This is unbelievable incompetence. But the more we learn, the more we realized this was not incompetence. Uh, it might go a little bit too far to say it was by design, but every single obviously wrong decision that was made around the shooter when he was a student was made for a good reason. It was made by administrators who were operating under a system that said, 
Uh, if students display disturbing behavior, don't report it, don't act on it, because uh, per your point of, of the Jonathan, work that Jonathan Butcher has done, uh, it was downstream of many factors, including this idea of discipline reform, which is downstream of identity politics, that holds all disparities to be prima facie evidence of racism, systemic racism. So if there's one group is getting disciplined more than another, that's a sign that the institution is racist. There needs to be institutional change. Uh, and that change comes very really in undercutting the normal judgments that people would make. Because the assumption is that people's normal judgments are irrevocably infected by racism, by ableism, as the case in this case, because the student had a disability, his disability being that he was an extremely mentally disturbed uh, and emotionally behaviorally disturbed individual. So there's this ideology that begins to hold sway at the top tiers of various institutions, including our public schools, that condemns the judgment of teachers, administrators as being racist, undercuts them, second guesses them. And maybe the sickest thing about it all, and this wasn't in the book, Mary Claire, and I, I don't even remember if we talked about it, um, but you know, after the parents realized everything that went wrong, uh, they, they got angry, they mobilized, they, they called for accountability, they called for a superintendent of schools, Robert Runcie, to resign or to be held accountable in some way. And the superintendent uh, and his staff literally called these parents racists for coming after him and oh for coming God. after his policies. There was one school board meeting where uh, he said in full view of all of the, of many of the parents and students, I find it ironic that uh, I'm being lectured by the community on our discipline policies when just the other day I got a letter from the ACLU and they say I haven't gone far enough, uh, close paraphrase. There was a public meeting which the parents attended to, to call for accountability and school district staff emailed uh, African-American churches to tell them that previous meetings, the Parkland parents had been doing rhetoric that was so vile, like nothing we've seen since desegregation orders were enforced. So members of the African-American religious community came to a public forum and booed the parents of murdered children for, oh my God. for accountability uh, because they objected to these policies. But that's not surprising, right? I mean, once you frame your your thinking and your morality in terms of the actions that we are taking are fighting racism, we are fighting systemic racism, anybody who objects to it runs a very real risk of being labeled a racist, even if the absolute worst that can happen does happen. I don't know how you spent, however, I don't know how long you spent writing this book. I remember when you told me that you were going to, and I thought, wow, what an incredible thing that he's going to do. But I don't know how you spend so much time looking into this issue without just being boiled over with rage. Maybe you were, I, I, just in us talking here, I mean, my blood pressure is just going through the roof because it is maddening that, I mean, policies have consequences, obviously, but the, the, the villainization of parents who are trying to figure out what happens, they're murdered kids who they dropped off going to school. It, it's, it's, enough, it's enough to make you go absolutely crazy. Um, I mean, people have been militarized on this because they've been so indoctrinated. I don't know if you guys have been on Instagram lately, but Instagram has now become a place where you just share these canned infographics that you just post on your Insta story that, that people don't read and are full of complete inaccuracies, but you have to post it because everyone else is posting it. And so you just have to show how woke you are. And it's so uh, corrosive to 
everything that we stand for as a society, uh, having, having individual thoughts, individual liberty, being of your own mind. That's what our schools are supposed to teach us. So I guess I'll turn to Mike, the optimist, because I'm just getting really depressed over here talking about this. Mike, what are, what are the remedies for this? I mean, I mean, not all policies have such disastrous effects like the ones that Max was just talking about, but policies have consequences and we're seeing this fundamentally change our culture. So, I mean, can you give us, give us some good hope here? Well, I mean, I do think that I, I don't want to be a Pollyannish either and say that the way back is going to be easy. I do foresee, uh, for example, I'm writing a paper now or an essay. I don't know which one, which direction it will go. I foresee a coming crackdown on freedom of speech for exactly the same reasons that we have been discussing here. Um, uh, there are many, many signs that this coming crack that this crackdown is coming. There was a long essay in the New York Times Magazine on October 13th, saying that we need to change the view, the way we view the First Amendment. And one of the things that uh, that people who want to change America say, so we have to be more like Europe. Nobody says that we have to be more like, like Peru or Chad or Thailand. They would say we have to be more like Europe. But the fact is, if you have, if you have lived in Europe, where I have lived, Europeans ha- are much less free than we are. In many ways, there are societies outside of Europe that have greater personal freedom. The Europeans who are, you know, followers of the continental enlightenment have chosen, you know, have passed very tough laws against freedom of speech. So, no, we, we shouldn't be more like uh, more like uh, Europe. I think we have to be aware of what's coming, talk about it often, say, no, we do not need to change the way we view the First Amendment, the way we view our, our, our natural right to free speech. Um, and But we also then have to take other steps. And I, I, I understand that this is the bare minimum, but I view this problem of woke culture and identity politics as a river being uh, filled with toxins by a bad factory. So the first thing you need to do is shut off the factory, cut off the toxins going into the river before you clean out the water, the algae, the fish. And in this case, the, the factory is the government. We have to get the government out of uh, category creation. Uh, the government is not, uh, they're not anthropologists. Uh, these are political decisions. This is part of a political project. So we need to get the government out of category creation. We need to stop the use of these categories. We need to stop thinking in terms of my, uh, majorities and minorities. Uh, we need to also get the government out of giving uh, benefits for being a member of a, a a group deemed to be a victim group. Uh, for example, let me just give you a, a, a small example. You can get a a, a, a special contract. Uh, you can get a quota now in, in government contracts if you sign an affidavit saying that you have been discriminated as some part of your life and you're a member of one of the victim categories. Success, the fact that you have overcome uh, your supposed uh, victimhood category just does not matter at all. So what this says is that is that these things that the victimhood is unexpungible. It is a cast. So we have to get out of that system of thinking and, and, and apply the same pressure on the government as the leftist activists did in the 70s, from the late 60s onto the early 80s, in creating this whole miasma of identity politics. Can we succeed in doing that? Yes, I believe we can. Okay, good optimism there. Max, do you have, do you have any optimism on this? I mean, how, how are we going to save our schools from this? You know, there's this article in the Huffington Post a couple of weeks ago about a 
one of the political appointees in the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, who is leading their diversity, equity, and inclusion task force, who is, you know, broadly of our persuasion about the ways in which these things can be toxic. And the reporter said it's kind of ironic to see somebody like this leading up a task force internally on equity initiatives when these are the very initiatives that the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights usually asks school districts to pursue as part of their remedies. So frankly, I think some of this stuff, you know, when Mike's talking about turning off the factory, whether or not anti-racist indoctrination becomes, you know, strongly discouraged or virtually mandatory in America's public schools will rest on who is in control of the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, and that is based on who's in the White House. Yeah, good insight there. If people want to keep up with both of your work, where, where can they follow you? Well, mine is uh, obviously heritage.org, my Twitter handle. I'm active on Twitter. is Gonzalez, which is Gonzalez in Latin, G-U-N-D-I-S-A-L-V-U-S. And Max, I got to say, you're incredibly optimistic if you think we're going to resolve anything in 11 days. <laughs> well, I will push back on being characterized as being incredibly optimistic. I will say that we may or may not be doomed in 11 days, or there might be some room for hope. <laughs> I don't think we're going to know anything in 11 days. Oh, oh, that's what you mean. Well, yeah. uh Yes, maybe I'm incredibly optimistic about that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. The next time listeners hear an episode of this podcast will be after the election. Who knows if we will have any idea who the president is then, but at least we'll have some more answers than we do now. Max and Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on COVID in the Classroom. I look forward to bringing you more essential information for parents, educators, and students during this critical time. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to receive a new episode every other Monday. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with someone who might enjoy it. We hope to see you next time. COVID and The Classroom is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.